Thanks for being here this morning and being a part of our church. Um, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, and so you can turn there with me. Um, I, uh, just as I was, I was getting ready to come up here, I, I, uh, oftentimes when I study and, and things like that, I, I, um, I come up with a lot of ideas and, and things like that uh, before I come up to preach. Um, and, uh, but I, I haven't settled on everything yet. And so, um, but just this morning, I just was just trying to process through my heart uh, as to what God wants to say to us through this passage. Um, and ultimately, I, th- I, think it's, I think it's this, as I, as I really kind of took a, um, a broad view of this passage of the, uh, the book of Daniel and of these passages that um, we know feel weird um, uh, because they're apocalyptic meaning they're talking about the end of the world, and they're talking about prophecy and things like that. But we can look at it, we can just go, man, this is, it's just weird, and I don't want to spend my life or, or my time as a believer really thinking about these things. And if, I mean, like if you're a non-believer, like there's no thought that goes into this, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, is in, re, in regards to the end of the world and and things like that, or, or maybe so, maybe you're here because you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, and I want to know, and so you're at the right place today, and so, um, but uh, this is really kind of an interesting passage, and it really all kind of ties in um, pretty incredibly with Christmas, and it wasn't planned that way. Um, I think it, it's, it, it's not something that we would normally teach on in, in around Christmas time, uh, but I really do believe, in fact, I, I, I know for sure that it points to Christmas. It points to the coming of Jesus. Um, but I believe that today is about preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus, preparing our hearts for the need of, 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 of coming to Jesus. Um, too many times in American Christianity, we have just a false view of what we need from God. And, so, and that's really echoed in our prayers. We can tell that we don't really understand this God when we look at our prayers, it, whether it's our lack of prayer life or maybe you have an abundant prayer life um, where you're praying all the time. But oftentimes what our prayers revolve around is us and, and what our specific needs are. If it's around Christmas time, it's like, please don't let my family member say that thing that they're, you know they're going to say, you know. It's like there's some type, you know, it's something political, it's something obnoxious, it's um, um, not that I would have any family members that would do that, but, um, uh, but uh, um, I, it would probably be me, actually, who would say something like that, but um, our, our prayer life is really revolving around the things that we need and the things that we want. Uh, our prayer life revolves around what, uh, what, what I um, desire most in my life. And so, therefore, it's a reflection of, of our commitment to God and our commitment to walking with Him. And so, and, and part of what this, what this would look like for you if you're here today and you don't really have a relationship with God, or, or maybe you have a tenuous relationship with God and it's just kind of there, kind of not, um, you're kind of not sure where you stand with this. Um, oftentimes, many people who, are, who don't really know God, they still pray. You get into a really difficult situation and you say, all right, God, if you exist then uh, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to help me with this. But that's where it stops. What Daniel's going to show us is that prayer 
really is, um, is, is different. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't, we wouldn't throw up a prayer and, and ask God uh, for specific things in our life. He calls himself Father for a reason. He is a good Father, and, and he wants to provide for us. And so there are things that we should be praying to him about. But uh, in part, what we want to say today is that this passage is preparing our hearts to really receive God in the way that he wants us to receive him. And so I want you to take a look at this um, with me. I want you to keep in mind something, and that is that Daniel is a Jew, and he's been taken captive. He's in another country. He's basically been kidnapped. He's been in a foreign country for most of his life. He uh, isn't really around um, you know, where he wants to be, and he longs to be back home. He longs to be with uh, with God and God's people, even though he has a relationship with God, he wants to be back in Jerusalem. He wants to be back in the temple and, and able to uh, bring the sacrifices and things of that nature. But he's separated from that because he's in another country. And so he has been worshiping God and worshiping God and worshiping God outside of the temple. Um, and so the temple is a very big deal. Today, we don't have to have a temple. Like this building isn't really a church. It's just a building that God's people, the church, meet in. And so things have changed from Old Testament to New Testament. So we don't, this isn't the place that we have to worship God. We can worship God always. And Daniel, in essence, is doing that as well in his life. And so here we go in chapter 9, verse 1. Let me read it. It says, In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years." So let me stop you right there um, real quick. Daniel is a guy who's reading his Bible. He's reading uh, one of the prophets, and that prophet that he's reading is Jeremiah. And so he's reading um, out of the book of Jeremiah, and in fact, he's probably reading out of this verse. There weren't verse numbers at that time, but he's reading out of a scroll. He's, he's understanding this. So Daniel, is a, he's a committed man of God. And he's looking for the will of God in his life. He's trying to understand what's going on. How does he relate to God? And so where does he look? He looks into the scriptures. And so the first thing that we need to know about Daniel is that instead of Daniel looking introspectively and saying, who is God in me? He's saying, who is God in reality? And what does he say about my situation? What does he say about, uh, about what's going on uh, in my life? What does he say about uh, the world at this time? And Jeremiah specifically speaks about the situation that Daniel is in. The situation that Daniel is in, he is in captivity. God has ordained this. This is uh, essentially uh, the Israel being put into exile because of their disobedience to God. God repeatedly warned them, repeat, repeatedly sent prophets uh, to them to say, if you don't stop, if you don't turn from your sin, then I am going to bring this calamity on you. And specifically, it's the Babylonians that are going to take you into captivity. As we know, Daniel is one of those people. And so he's reading in the book of Jeremiah where it is prophesied about what's going to take place. So Jeremiah 25, 11 uh, through 13 says this, this whole land shall become a ruin. 
and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words uh, that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations." So what he's reading is he's reading in Jeremiah about what God is going to do to to Babylon. Daniel's thinking, hey, I've been in Babylon now about 70 years. And so I remember this passage where Jeremiah, the prophet, had prophesied this. And so he's looking into this. He's reading the Bible. And he's he's saying, uh, all right, God, when is this going to happen? And so what he's seeing is he's seeing God decreeing that something will take place, and then he's going to respond to that. Now, you need to understand something, and that is that this is a model for how we come to God. It's a model for, all right, how do I have relationship with God? How do I walk with him, and, and what does my future look like, and, and what are the things, how are the things in my life going to relate to who he is, and he does the exact right thing. Daniel himself is a prophet, God has spoken truth to him. He's given him wisdom. He's given him direction. He's prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar and to, other, uh, uh, to another king at this time. And this guy, he knows a lot, and yet he's going back to another prophet, and he's hearing from him. In fact, John Calvin says this. He says, Although Daniel was an interpreter of dreams, he was not so elated with confidence or pride as to despise the teaching delivered by other prophets. Sinclair Ferguson also says this. He says, he was seeking to have his mind informed and his heart dominated by whatever God had said about his current situation. So here's the question for you as as we get started here, and that is, is your mind dominated by what God wants in your life Or are you arrogantly and pridefully believing that you can figure it out? Don't answer that yet. Let's look at how much you look to the Word of God for those answers. Let's look to how you look into the Scriptures and you say, God, speak to me. Or are you arrogantly believing that God has spoken to you outside of his scripture? I'm not saying that God cannot speak to you outside of his scriptures. But the way that God speaks to us is normally always through the scriptures to lead us to what God has said and to inform our daily life. And too frequently we are not those people. We're not those people that are looking to the scriptures. We arrogantly believe that somehow we can come up with the answer instead of seeking God and his word and what he has had to say to us. That's the first thing. Verse 3 says this, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What's he doing here? He He is saying, I've turned my face to the Lord. Uh, instead of having our backs to the Lord, he has his face to the Lord. And turning his face to the Lord, he's no longer what the scriptures often say, that the, the Jewish people are a stiff-necked people. They won't turn. They won't turn to God. 
but he has turned his face to the Lord, and he is seeking him, but he's more than just seeking him and like, okay, yeah, I'll do, I'll, I'll do this. Man, so many of us, so many times, and we can slip into this very easily. I know I have very many times. I look at my scripture reading as like it's, it's something that I have to do. Well, in, in part, I have to do it because it is my job. I also go to school for it. But then on top of that, I feel like this pressure, like I've got to read the word. I've got to whatever. But Daniel looks at reading the word in another way. Daniel looks at reading the word as, as saying, I want to hear from God. I want to know what he has to say to me. And he's saying, I, I'm longing to hear from you. He's He's fasting. And so there may be a literal fasting that we should do as we're seeking God. We uh, put away uh, food or some type of food or something for a period of time so that we can be focused on the Lord alone. But then there's also this figurative fasting that says that in my life there are things that need to go away in order to make space for God. There are things that need to, to stop in order for me to have time. So many of us say, like this is the mantra of American Christianity, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. And yet we have plenty of time to binge watch a show. I'm with you um, in, in, in some of that. Um, when, when 24 was, uh, was uh, around the, the show, 24 with Kiefer Sutherland and Jack Bauer and uh, all of that, I mean, me and my wife, it was like we wasted like a year of our life, right? I mean, it was like, it was like, I can never get that back, but it was so good. Um, but we never give a second thought to uh, fasting in our life and saying, okay, how do I fast these things in my life to make space for God? How do I fast and put away some of these things so that I can connect with God? Someone who is truly seeking after God is someone who fasts in some ways in order to say, I want to be with God in, and sackcloth and ashes. That's not something that we would typically do today, but he's putting on the clothes of mourning. He's making his bodily appearance to look like, okay, I want to seek after God. That's not something that's commanded in the New Testament. That's Old Testament. But here is a guy who's tru truly seeking after God. So he's turned his face to the Lord. He's seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy in his life. So he reads the word, and now he's responding. So what's our response from reading the word? Is there any conviction? What's our response to truly seeking after God? Is there any conviction in our life? Or does it go in one ear and out the other? American Christians are famous for believing that everyone else out there are the evil ones and we are the holy ones. We are the ones who are going to right this nation through our votes, through the uh, causes that we support, and things of that nature. Now, I do believe that there are good causes to support. I've talked about them frequently. Um, however, what we believe is that everyone out there has a major problem, and we're not the ones with the problem. The position of a Christian, someone who knows God, a follower of Yahweh, is somebody who comes to God, and they're they are aware of their position with God. And Daniel is aware of his position with God, which is why he's coming to God with pleas for mercy. 
And so what is he saying in prayer? Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord. See how that word Lord is all caps. Lord, my God, and made confession saying, oh, Lord. You see how that is not all caps. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. What's he saying right there? He's saying, I prayed to this God. What God is he talking about? He's talking about the Hebrew God. He's talking about Yahweh. His name is not God. God is his position. He's a deity. He is, he is the judge. He is God. But he, what is God's name? God's name is Yahweh. God's name is Yahweh. And so he says, I prayed to Yahweh, my Elohim, which is my God, my judge, and made confession saying, O Lord, which is O Master Adonai. He's saying, O Master, the great and awesome God. Look at just what happened, what happened there. He's saying, I'm using the covenant name of God. And what's a covenant? A covenant is, in essence, it's, 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 it's really not a good description, but it's, it's like a contract. And when you look at uh, uh, the Old Testament, what you see, especially in the first five books of the Old Testament, you see God's covenant with his people. And the covenant says this, there's blessings and curses. If you obey me, if you do what's right, you get blessings. If you do what's wrong, you get curses. And so what happens is this, is that Israel doesn't obey. And so he is a covenant God, but he's evoking this covenant language. He's, in essence, trying to say to God, I'm reminding you of your covenant. I'm reminding you of your promises. And what's it doing for Daniel? Daniel is being reminded of God's covenant. Daniel is being reminded of his promises. Daniel is being reminded of what God promised in Jeremiah 25. When 70 years are over, then I'm going to do this. And so... He is saying, I'm talking to this God at this time. He is my God, and I need to confess to him. He is my master. He's over my life. He is the great and awesome God. And what does he do? He keeps, he's the covenant keeper. He's the one who keeps the covenant. He's the one with steadfast love. His love doesn't wane one way or the other. His love is steadfast. What's he saying about God? He's saying, you're the one who has kept the covenant. We have not kept the covenant. You're the one with steadfast love, God, and we are not the one with steadfast love. What's he saying? He is saying that this is the God. He's adoring God. He's, he's, he's saying what's true about God. He understands positionally who God is through his names, through his covenant-keeping. Through all of history, he's remembering all these things. Now, we as believers take God as though he is light and inconsequential rather than heavy, meaningful, and very consequential. The heaviness of God, the weight, the weight of who he is does not often come into our mind. We don't think about, okay, he's God and I'm not. So one of the best things that Daniel does in his prayer right here of confession is that he begins with understanding who God is. By the way, you should also do the same thing. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaching us, hey, you got to begin with who I am. You got to begin with where I am in relation to where you are. You got to understand that I am God, that I am king, that I am master. I am Yahweh of the Old Testament. I'm the one who parted the waters. I'm the one who did all of these things through Israel, saving them time after time and time again. I am this God and I am holy. This is what God wants you to understand. So as we're coming to God, we need to understand who he is. What's he say next? In verse five, he says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now that's quite a confession, but it goes on and on and on and on here. There, I mean, just word after word after word of confession and repentance. So he begins with God, and then he turns his eyes to himself, and he tells the truth about he, who he is and his people. Now, Daniel it, himself, he is not necessarily a bad guy. I mean, he's writing scripture for the love, right? Like, he's a pretty good guy. Like, we've seen some things, and yet we know that Daniel is still human. Daniel is a part of this people group. But Daniel takes on the confession of these people and he acknowledges that as a people, this is who we are. This is what we're like. Now, what would really take off the edge off of our political arrogance as we look at our city and we look at the people around us and, and the people who, frankly, do things that we would disagree with that are not biblical, what would really help us out is if we came to the scriptures and we saw something like that and we said, this is who God is, and relationally speaking, this is who I am. This is who I am. Uh, I have sinned. I have done wrong. I have acted wickedly. I have rebelled. I have turned aside from your commandments and rules. I have not listened to your word, to your servants, to your prophets. I have not been those things. See, here's the thing. You can't come to God without first acknowledging this at all. Like, you can't come to God. Like, your relationship with God does not begin with you saying, you know what, I'm a pretty good person, and I got some stuff down. Like, I've started being nice to people. I want to make some changes. And so God should honor me in that. And how many of us in this room have actually come to God saying, hey, God, here's all the good things that I've done for you. You should accept me. You should accept me. Daniel doesn't do that. In fact, he makes it explicitly clear towards the end. But Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel comes to God and he says, I have nothing for you. I have nothing to bring you. My hands are empty. I don't have anything to bring before you, God. You have no reason to keep your covenant except for the fact that you are the covenant-keeping God. You are the one. You are him. You can do this. You have steadfast love, even though we have not. He's acknowledging positionally where he's at before he can come to God. Now, have you acknowledged where you were before God? Because if you're still standing in front of God saying, you know what, I've tried to do some good things. I've tried to do more good than bad. I have tried to, you know, all of these things, and you should accept me. If that is where you started relationship with God, you do not have relationship with God. 
You have relationship with self. You have relationship with a false God. You have relationship with a, fa- with a God that you have made in your own mind. You have created this God. And this is not the God of the Bible because the way that you come to God is through acknowledgement of who you are. When the Spirit of God comes and awakens your soul to who he is, he awakens to who you are positionally with God. Look at verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who uh, are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, uh, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. He's going in detail into confession. He's talking about particular instances. He's acknowledging where he's at specifically as a people group. And now we as God's people must walk through our lives and say, God, look, look into every nook and cranny of my life and begin, and, and God, I want you to convict. I want you to look at this. And when God really comes over your life, there is conviction of sin. Now, people look at conviction and they say, well, that's, that's, you just want me to feel guilty? No, you need to be, you need to acknowledge where you have wronged God to understand the guilt that should come from that and as a result, the need for God to save you, for him to be the covenant keeper, for him to be the one with steadfast love that you need. If he's not the covenant keeper who can save you from your sins, then you don't need him. You don't have a desire for him. You don't, you're not waiting for the Savior. You're not anticipating the Christmas story. You are saying, I don't really need the Christmas story. I'm good on my own. But what this is saying is he's saying, it's saying, God, you are the one who is righteous. You are the one who is good. And I am responsible for open shame. I am the one who's allowed this to take place, and God is the one who's subjected me to it. He's allowed me to be shamed in my life. He's allowed this to take place, and he's going through in detail in his life. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of of the Lord. That's Yahweh again, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Look at the the voice has been repeated twice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses. He's talking about the blessings and curses. He's saying, and this is the curse and the oath. He's remembering this. Uh, The servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us uh, uh, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities, gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord 
has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. Just stop right there for a second. What's, what's the, biggest, the biggest problem? The biggest problem. If you look back at verse 6, it says, We have not listened to your servants. If you look at verse 10, have not obeyed the voice. If you look at verse 11, refusing to obey your voice. If you look at verse uh, 14, and we have not obeyed his voice. Over and over and over again, what's the problem? God's people do not listen to his voice. He's referring over and over again to the prophets who are literally speaking to them, talking to these people. He's, he's acknowledging that Israel did not listen to these preachers. But then he's also saying they didn't look at the word of God and believe that it's true and then respond accordingly and as a result say, okay, I'm going to listen, I'm going to hear the voice of God. So what's happening in their life? What's happening in their life? Well, God's people, they get, uh, God saves them. We'll summarize this. Send, sends them into the promised land. And instead of removing all of these people groups around them the way that God had told them, they remove some of them, but they leave others. And God had told them, he said, listen, you've got to get these people out of your land, out of around, around my people, because you're going to take on their gods, and you're going you're to take on their customs, and then you're going to marry into their, their families and, 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 and so forth. And what's going to happen is your life is going to be polluted by these outside influences, and so what takes place is this, is that Israel, little by little, takes on these other gods, these other people, until the most heinous things begin to happen. That God's people end up taking on their customs and taking on everything around them, around their surrounding culture, and instead of being a distinct people, they become a, pe a, a, a group of people who are just along with everybody else, and ultimately what they end up doing is they end up sacrificing their own sons and daughters on altars. It's, it's horrific. God is so dismayed that he says something uh, in, in, in the scriptures where it's, it's like, I can't even believe that you did this. Like, and this is God, who is sovereign, who knows all things, who's decreed all things. And it's like, it's one, it's one time where you see God say, like, I'm so flabbergasted that you, God like holds them responsible and says, I never told you to do that, and you did it. Like, this is, it's horrific the way that they lived. And they wouldn't obey, and they wouldn't obey, and they wouldn't obey. And so what's happening here is it kind of gives us a picture of our life. Of our life in our surrounding culture. Instead of being a distinct people, God has not told us to expel all of these other nations or all of these other religions or all of these other thoughts, but God has told us to be a distinct people. And what do God's people do all the time? God's people ultimately end up 
worshiping and serving other gods all the time. All the time. And perhaps we're not literally sacrificing our kids on an altar. But we may come to a point where we say, you know what? It's expedient to abort my child. That's a way of sacrifice. It's saying my life is more important than having the life of this child with me. And I know that there's some of us in this room who've experienced that, and it's horrific. And you grieve over that. And, and, and you're, you're suffering because of that. That's a sin that Jesus went to the cross for. He loves you immensely. He died for that. But as we look at our lives and the things that we agree with and the things that we walk with, are we in agreement with our culture that says that kids are expendable, we should give them whatever they want whenever they want it? Are we engaging with the culture so much that, we, that what begins to take place is that it is barely discernible like my life from their life? Like, it's, like there's nothing distinct about who I am. I've taken on their gods of, of money, sex, and power. I've taken on their gods of the individual as being right all the time and the one who is ultimately sovereign. And so our lives take on this flavor, this texture of our culture. And have we confessed that? Have we repented of that? See, as we come to Christmas and you look uh, forward to a baby in a manger, like we were driving around with our kids, um, uh, you know, at the Kaiser Lights and, uh, you know, we got kids hanging out the sunroof. It was really safe. And, uh, and we're looking at the lights and we're counting the nativity scenes. Like there's 20, I think, there were, I, I think the last number I heard was like 25, 25 nativ- nativity scenes. But Jesus has become a decoration and not a declaration. Jesus has become a decoration, like he's, he's the window dressing, but he's not the full picture any longer. Because what, what Jesus represents is the healing for all of this stuff. What Jesus represents is, is he represents uh, the, the voice of God. In fact, he is called the word of God. And he comes, and it's, it, it's no longer that God is just sending prophets and, and all of these things, but he sends the true prophet, Jesus. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, through his life, through his life, as he comes into the world, he is speaking for God. He is called the Word of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus shows us who God is. And what is he speaking? He is speaking like, hey, just what he says here, to our Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness. He's speaking, he's resonating, he is exemplifying with his life mercy and forgiveness. As we take account of our own lives and we say, I am somebody who has 
gone along with the culture. I am somebody who has not walked with God. I am somebody who has put off the voice of God. I've turned my face away from God. I am a stiff-necked person. I don't want to hear it. I've made stuff up about God. I've said God told me this or God told me that or I have a peace about this and I have a peace about that and it has nothing to do with the word of God. It has nothing to do with what God really said. It has, nothing, it has everything to do with me being an arrogant punk toward God. That's why we need Jesus. See, you can't be excited about a decoration, but you can be excited about a declaration that says, okay, you've acknowledged your sin before me. You've acknowledged who you are. You've acknowledged these things. That can only happen because I allowed it to take place by the power of my spirit. I've awakened your heart. I've awakened your soul to who you really are. And now you get to see who I am. And he shows us that through Jesus. Are you waiting for Jesus? Are you longing for him? Are you anticipating who he is? See, Daniel is. He says, and now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And now for your own sake, for your own sake, look at that, for your own sake. How, he's appealing to God not on his basis, but on God's basis, for your sake, for your sake, would you please listen? Would you please respond? Keep in mind, God has decreed this. God has said it's going to last 70 years, and Daniel is still praying. For those of us that get confused with God, is God sovereign, or does he want me to pray? Does God control everything? If he controls everything, why should I pray about things? Well, it's because he wants us to pray about things. Prayer is about conforming our will to God's will. Prayer is saying, God, I acknowledge your control. Daniel's still praying even though God has decreed this. God has prophesied this. And he says, for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. God, I want you. I, I want to receive your blessing. I want you in my life. This is what he's saying. He's praying for his people, for his, his group, for his nation which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Look at what he says there. I'm not coming to you, God, because I'm a good person. Like, 
That's arrogance. That's pride. That's not anticipating the coming Savior. That's saying, I'm good, I'm great, I'm awesome, you should accept me the way that I am. No, it's saying, I am not coming to you because of my righteousness. We don't wait for Jesus because of our righteousness. We don't long for his arrival because of what we've done, but because of your great mercy. And this is so poetic, the last verse here. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. That's bold. Listen up here, Lord. Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He is longing for the promises that he sees in in Scripture. He's longing for who God is to be exemplified through his people. He's longing to be home. And he's saying, God, how are you going to answer this? Yahweh, how are you going to answer this? How are you going to show your steadfast love, your mercy, your faithfulness? And I just want to tell you that the answer is Christmas. And so next week, uh, I'll do something that I never thought I would do, and that is, <laughs> is talk about apocalyptic literature on Christmas Eve. So it really sounds awful, doesn't it? I bet you it's going to be good, though. So we're waiting for Jesus. Someone's going to come and tell Daniel, hey, I got you covered. Here's what's going to happen. It has a lot to do with Christmas. And we'll find out more next week. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts. God, not to necessarily feel guilt and shame, but Lord, to be aware of the guilt and shame that we have that you are freely bringing us through your Son. God, we, are, uh, we need a, pers- a, a new perspective, a change of viewpoint on Christmas so that we can see you not as a decoration <laughs> anymore, but as a declaration. Lord, every nativity scene is a declaration of an answer to prayer, and not just one prayer, but through the prophecies and what you had always intended Uh, throughout eternity that you were going to send the Son. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for coming. We thank you so much. We thank you so much for this time of, of Christmas that we get to remember you and that we get to resonate with what you've done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be thinking through these things, that as we're anticipating the Savior coming, as we're anticipating you being here, Lord, that you'd prepare our hearts, that we'd be aware of all of the ways that we need you, all of the ways that we've sinned, the way that Daniel walks through his life and says, there's this and there's that. We didn't listen to your voice. We didn't do anything. God, remind us of this. Make us aware. Lord, speak to us. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.